welcome to a very special episode today. This is episode is intended to be kind of a review of everything that we've seen over the last year in our conversations. And particularly, I wanted to share some of the most meaningful conversations that I've had and, and how they've really changed me both as a practitioner, um, as an individual and overall professional. And these, these stories really aren't um, in any particular order, but just things that kind of make you think. I think everyone this year has been through a lot uh, coming through COVID and going back to the new norm for whatever version uh, of that um, kind of life is at your current job. And maybe you've changed jobs or professions, but for certain, there are things that have changed um, that may never go back. And then other things, um, hopefully, that have gotten better. Um, and so throughout the course of these conversations, when we started this podcast um, almost a year and a half, two years ago, we really wanted to become a source of information for individuals on a day-to-day -day kind of practitioner's guide, if you will, on a wide range of topics. And we've brought in experts from a whole range of industries and you know, shared some stories, some practical side, um, practical things, but then also really kind of diving deep into the science, diving deep into the future of kind of what our industry has in store for us. And so we want to kind of walk through these today. And again, like I said, these aren't in any particular order. And I think every conversation I've had has been incredibly meaningful. And we really thank our guests for coming on. But I think some of these, you know, ones that we want to talk about today are really worth sharing and, and kind of talking about, you know, amongst your friends or your coworkers, and really seeing, you know, how we could apply some of these findings um, in our everyday life. And, you know, I think I'd start off right with one of our first conversations we had, and that was with Eric Renahan. So Eric uh, came on and we talked about a lot of different things, but particularly, and it's one of our most popular downloads, is this kind of concept of merit-based training. And specifically why merit-based training, I think, is so applicable to where we're at today is that there's a lot of things that we can measure. There's a lot of things that we can look at and analyze, but almost to a fault. And so I think the modern practitioner really has to take the time not only to figure out what metrics matter to them, but also what does it matter to the other shareholders that are involved? Too often you can get into situations of siloed workplaces or siloed departments where I think this is important, or I believe in this, I believe in that. But regardless of whatever you're talking about, it only has applicability if you're able to facilitate conversation and communication across the different departments, ultimately to get the goal, hence the idea of this merit-based training. And so I thought Eric did a great job of really breaking that down and how he used it in the professional setting, how he used it in the private sector setting, and kind of now as he's going on and moved forward and, and currently working with the University of Miami Hurricanes football, is how do we go about the situation of you're put into an environment or you're placed on a team and you have to start from ground zero. And I think some of his things that he talked about really hit home and, and they have real applicability, not only to new departments, but also maybe new interactions or you know a team that's starting to come around and, and they're interested in getting started. And how do you go about creating that community and culture around the metrics so that everybody understands what's being expected of them, both as a practitioner, but then also kind of as the athlete moving forward so that, you know, we know what a win is and we know what areas need to be improved on. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump in, take a little snippet um, from that, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. Yeah, no, I think you, you touched on earlier when you, when you talked about uh, the synergistic relationship and between how you either program for an athlete and depending on what you're trying to accomplish. And I think I look at, you know, force, force data in a similar fashion, you know, the relationship between the, the variables that you decide to unpackage from the force tracing is key. Right. And you, like you said, you may have a very, very good jump height, but 
everything leading up to the jump height except for this one thing or deficient well you may have a very good output but you cannot sustain that output potentially and you may be at risk for underlying pathology that you know it has not become catastrophic but very well could if there's not an intervention made and so the relationship between the, the variables and the, the strategy within that output that you're able to measure I think that's more important to me. And that's, again, uh, you know, you, we could have athletes on our team, you know, back, I look back at some of the guys on the blues, they, they may not have been the most impressive. They may not have been the most uh, uh, fast of skaters, but they were the most consistent. They were the best at recovering. They were the most dialed in when it came to taking care of themselves. So they were in the lineup all the time. Right. And this conversation was such a impactful one for me. And, and I think particularly that line there, when he talks about, unpacking the force trace and really understanding not only, you know, what is the output? And I think obviously within our field, we've always had leaderboards. How high did you jump? How fast did you run? But his point there that he brings out about you have a good or great output, but you're not going to be able to sustain it. And his whole, you know, talking about working with a team is that sometimes it's not about the top performers. Um, it's about the performers that are consistently available. And if, and if anything, kind of in my time here in Hawken, that line that he said there really, really started to get, you know, my wheels turning about, okay, yeah, let's just assume everybody's within a cluster or a cohort of physically viable. So they are fast, they are strong, but what really separates them? And we see this in other industries and in and, and financial industries, it might be volatility in insurance. We think about risk. So what are these things for us as practitioners that we can be looking at? And I don't know if there's one specific answer as far as a sport or specific movement pattern, but when we break things down joint by joint, we look at an ankle, we look at a knee, we look at a hip, and we kind of translate up and down the kinetic line. If we think about each one of those as sectors, there definitely is a way that we can break things down both quantitatively and qualitatively to make an assessment of, okay, is it the strategy that we're using going to allow us to even be available when it comes time for playoffs? And I think, you know, we've mentioned in a couple episodes about what would you say if you could up a vertical jump one inch, but you potentially put in a strategy that decreased the likelihood that you would be available for games by 20%, would you do it? And again, is it a senior? Is it a, la is it a contract year? Is it a, as a first year? Is it a high school player? All these things kind of go into the larger context, but his point there about really thinking about what are the underlying pathologies? Because I do think that's important because there's certain things we can change. I, I can't make you taller. I can make you faster to a point, but that's largely genetic. But we have these different characteristics like body composition, like nutrition, sleep hygiene, force production at low speeds. We can really make some tremendous strides and gains in it, but we have to be you know, able to understand, well, am I not strong because I, I'm so tight in my hips, I, I can't get into you know, deep hip flexion. Therefore, I can't get into a squat. Or I can't extend my ankle um, because I've had multiple sprains or maybe I had a fracture. So again, what are these pathologies neurologically, muscularly, or just kind of even metabolically across the way on repeated efforts that really are going to be hindering the likelihood that we're going to be able to sustain that output without decrement to the larger system? And I think that that's super important. And everybody talks about this. Lots of people, obviously, these are our metrics, these are our KPIs, but I've often seen a lot of people talk about it. They don't execute it quite as well as maybe that they hope to. And I think Eric just brings up a lot of great points about 
clearly defining having that sit down meeting, both with the sport coach, with the athletic training staff, sports medicine agents, whoever may be involved and really having a round table discussion. And the way that he speaks about it, it's a lot more like picking a language or picking a set of letters or uh, using a specific type of alphabet to be able to communicate um, kind of what's going on, both on an effort standpoint, but also on the productivity standpoint. Again, if my goal is to make someone bigger and stronger, I don't really want to hear necessarily that their, 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 um, their cardio or conditioning isn't exactly where we want them to be because maybe we have six months to, to address that. But right here and right now, one of the things I want to work on is, you know, their, their force production. But if we don't know what force is and we think about strength, <laughs> we always joke about, you know, powerlifting should be called force lifting. Olympic lifting should be called powerlifting. And well, I don't know what you would call just an average gym goer, but whatever kind of exercising that is, um, nomenclature and specifically the wording and the measurement around those parameters become super important. So I think it's one of those things that's definitely uh, worth taking a look at within your organization, within your staff and saying, okay, what are the things that we value? What are the things that we find important? And more particularly, what are the shareholders role in each of those areas? And then are we doing as great as we can? or are there areas for improvement, or maybe there's just a, a new person on staff. And so we have to rebuild this relationship, whether it's the end of a year, whether it's the end of a semester, but all of these things kind of go into a larger paradigm of, okay, what are we doing? And I think that, you know, he, he really, he really hammers at home when he talks about how the athletes really, they can tell when there's buy-in, they can tell when there's alignment. And so really taking the time to pick those things and really focus in um, kind of on what's important. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to put the best product forward to be able to help the athletes to, you know, buy into the, the path and the dream that they're looking to achieve. Um, and what better way to do so by getting everybody on the same page. And so that kind of rolls into another conversation that we had as we've talked about the training side of things. But I, I was really, really shocked when we brought Dr. Um, Dave Dodick on to talk about um, concussions. And what was so interesting about this, it was one of our earlier ones, it was podcast number three. He really broke concussions down to a level that I didn't even think was you know, possible. And he, he really was able to explain to us not only what he's currently done um, at the Mayo Clinic, but then also some of the novel testing and, and, and interventions that are going forward. And it really made me think. You know, as a father, and, and you think about your kid going and, and hitting their head um, within a sport, whether it be hockey, football, uh, soccer, whatever it is, what's actually going on? And we wouldn't, without question, think about giving our kids shin pads. We would never think about letting our athletes play without a helmet. But what are we doing on a cellular level? And so his breakdown, when he talks about specifically glutamate, and how that contact, you know, can excite certain neurotransmitters and specifically as it goes to the NDMA, oh, sorry, M NMDA receptors, how everybody's different. And with all the neurotransmitters that you have and with all the cells you have, are we not thinking about contact and sports um, at too shallow of a level? And so let's just jump in real quick here and take a listen um, and hear, you know, his breakdown of this and we'll, and we'll unpack it a little bit after the break. At a molecular level, <clears throat> maybe I release more glutamate than you do, or maybe my NMDA receptors, to which, which is the target of glutamate, are much more susceptible to this, to activation. So I produce more excitotoxic damage, more injury, and therefore more symptoms than you do. So it is so complicated. We've got 60 neurotransmitters in and in 100 billion cells, and my cells may react differently on a molecular level, probably from 
on a, on a genetic basis than you. So right there, you can kind of see, it makes you think about the concussion that you see on the NFL uh, on Sunday a little bit differently. It makes you think about when we have sports and whether it's martial arts or anything like that, what's actually going on in the brain. I think also too, with the brain, um, you can see a broken bone, you can see kind of a orthopedic related injury, but the brain is definitely the new frontier and, and understanding that, you know, it's not a sign of weakness if you're having problems. And we've seen this with PTSD. We've seen this with other mental health issues we really don't know, or we're just beginning to know kind of how people respond to stress and trauma um, and impact. And, and the answer is going to be everyone's different. And if you go further into this podcast, when he talks about the product Cinequil um, that he, he made alongside the people at Thorne, I thought it was very interesting that, you know, the proceeds um, goes towards domestic abuse victims. And I didn't expect that when he talked and he said, well, you know, you know, the part of the reason why I'm doing this is, is not just for myself, it's to kind of give back because that's how important this is. And, you know, you think about most domestic abuse um, instances involve some sort of head trauma. So one, didn't know that. And two, also, it really kind of made me stop and think about the brain. And as I mentioned before, um, this specific episode was particularly touching to me because little did I know, um, a few weeks after this recording, I myself was um, diagnosed with um, a brain tumor. So for me to be able to go through and, and the question, was it through concussions? Was it through life? What were the pathologies? I, I listened to this episode quite frequently and starting to think about what's going on because inside your brain, it's weird. It's one of those organs where it's not an elbow. It's, it's not an ankle. Um, it's both physiologically who you are consciously as a person, but there's also the psychologically side of things. And so being able to take control and, and use products and, and use a different mindfulness approach towards these things has been super beneficial. And I know I've had several people reach out to me about the product, um, about that podcast that he did and how it really helped them. And I know that coaches around the country and around the world have started talking to us about, okay, how am I going to approach this differently? How am I going to you know, help my athletes and provide a, a new resource um, that, you know, again, when we're talking about dollars and cents, is basically nothing. And, and can we add one extra layer of protection to everything that we do? Because in the pursuit of performance, we don't want to lose sight of kind of that larger global safety. And if you're telling me that, you know, we're just going to add this within our protein shakes post-workout, um, that's an easy, that's an easy ask. That is certainly something that can be implemented and something that can make a really big, 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 big difference in how the people are able to handle the stresses and loads that they may be encountering either in combat or in practice or out on the game field. So certainly a very interesting um, conversation that really kind of touched me um, kind of on a lot of different levels. And I think that, again, you see this reoccurring theme with everyone that we've spoken to is that it comes back to the athlete. And so when we're dealing with things from an external standpoint and internal standpoint, we're moving forward. We, we've got our game plan. We want to be able to communicate that. And that rolls me into our next conversation that we had um, with the, you know, Hall of Fame legendary coach, um, Coach Boyd Epley. Now, Boyd talked about a lot of things. And in his conversation, obviously, I geek out about numbers and innovation. You know, people forget that there were 49 patents that came out of the, you know, Nebraska pipeline throughout the years, everything from the, you know, uh, squat rack, the half rack to the adjustable telescoping benches, which is actually at the Stark Museum down in Texas. Um, so certainly lots and lots of innovation, but Boyd really, you know, I think sometimes doesn't get the credit that he's deserved for being able to communicate to the players about buying into a system long before, long, long before 
data was cool and sexy and, you know, there was an actual title for it. He actually was one of the first strength coaches um, in college athletics and then the first paid strength coach um, back in 72. And so it's interesting to hear how history kind of repeats itself, but we come back to these core values. And so when we jump into analytics and we start talking about training and what's possible and okay, I'm hit with a sea of numbers. What's that central thing that every athlete, you know, wants to know? Um, I think he, you know, very eloquently explains it here in this snippet. So let's take a listen. In order to get someone to work hard, they have to believe in what you're doing. They have to believe that it's going to help them. So I've always tried to, whether it's with a recruit or even with people that are in the program, point out where they're at, what's possible if they work hard, like, if you work hard, you're going to improve two tenths of a hundred, uh, two hundredths of a tenth on, on your 40 yard dash in this much time. This is what you can expect in in uh, your first year. This is what you know. You lay it out for them, and it's amazing how many athletes come up to me years later and say, "Coach, you were right on the money. I did this, I did this, and that's what you told me I was going to do, and it worked." But they have to do the work, not the coach. The way that coach talks about how it's not about just the numbers that you show. It's about talking about where they're at, because without fail, you're going to have an athlete come to you or an individual come to you for training, and they need a realistic assessment of where they're at. And what I love that he points out is that if you buy into the program, here's where you can go. If you know, you're you know working with me and you say, Hey, you can't dunk, you know, in six months, you're going to be able to dunk. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an idiot. I know that that's never going to happen. So that goal and that belief makes my buy-in a little bit more questionable. But if you said, Hey, we can work on this. We can increase your vertical jump by this much. If you fall into the plan, I think that that kind of historic lesson is so central, especially today with where we've got force plates and we've got GPS and we've got, you know, all sorts of biometrics that we can use to be able to analyze movement to the nth degree stuff that wasn't possible in the seventies is now commonplace with entire departments dedicated to just crunching numbers, crunching numbers. No matter what numbers you're crunching, it's so important that there's a context and furthermore, a larger belief in how those numbers can impact them and help them either get on the field or stay on the field. And, and we've said this time and time again, sometimes we're talking about preventing decay and decline. Other times we're you know starting day one and everybody's had a day one start point in the weight room usually pretty nerve wracking. You don't feel very strong. You don't feel very fast, but you know, you grow confidence with each rep under the bar. But I love the way that coach talks about that. And he highlights, you know, the, the index, the performance index that he used that, you know, is now commercially available through Dasher. Um, and so you can go through and use it. And this is the same index that he used to help explain to his athletes. And if you break it down, it's pretty simple. The, the Epley advantage index is what it's called. And when you break it down, there's a vertical component, a horizontal component, and a linear component. And then you get kind of this decathlon type scoring system, which depending on how much you weigh, you get more or less points for the given tasks and feet. But what is it really? It's a three-dimensional power cube. And so we live in the force plate world where we measure that and we know how impactful it is and how predictive it is at, you know, what needs to be done or what, you know, should be monitored or, you know, kept an eye out for as far as strategies. But now when we start combining that technology with known, you know, field tests and, and change of directions that have been weighted um, for a given individual, that becomes really powerful. And so you can really help an individual to say, yeah, your power output has gone up. Your jump momentum has gone up. Now your 10 yard dash will get better. Your 40 yard dash will get better. Your whatever the linear speed is. 
And that linking technology and linking data points together for a larger combined belief is super powerful. But I do think that as coach mentioned, you have to take the time to sit down with the athlete and make sure that they very, very clearly understand where they're at, where you'd like them to go and the steps in between, because just coming in with a report and saying, here's your numbers, this is, this is where you're at. Da, 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 that's a radiologist. That's not someone who's coming in with solutions. And I think there is some reservation too, to sport coaches where again, technology is still so new and novel to them. It can be a little bit overwhelming. And especially if you're taking over a program, that's no good. It's, it's not helpful to walk in and say, yep, we're not good. We stink at every category. Well, okay, here's where we're at. Here's the lowest hanging fruit. Here's where we're going to address this with recruiting. Here's where we're going to address this in the weight room. Here's where we're going to address this from rehab, but then we're going to reassess it. And if everybody buys in, we should incrementally move in this forward direction. And if done right, that's one of the most powerful things that data can do. But if we're just arbitrarily picking a sea of data that says we're not very good without a clear plan on how to make it better, that doesn't, that doesn't really help the situation. And I think that, you know, very often people get caught up with, okay, I'm going to be old school or I'm going to be new school. I'm going to be one of those objective data coaches, or I'm going to be old school, just coach them up, make them work hard. And I don't think it has to be like that anymore. And, and it reminds me of the conversation that I had with team builder CEO, Hewitt Tomlin, when we talked about in episode 12 about, yes, we can measure numbers, but what's the context? And I know every old school coach can you know, vouch for this is that when we look at an athlete, I don't care how much they moved so much as in how they moved it. And being able to blend those two worlds, and, and I, I've spoken at nauseum on these podcasts about how lucky I was to be able to have Team Builder everywhere that I've gone, but then to be able to combine the video component to see, okay, is it 405 on a back squat? You know, is it a 315 clean, but how does it look? And so why don't we jump in real quick, take a listen as Hewitt breaks it down and kind of the integration of both the subjective and objective measurements um, that you can do day in and day out in your practice we can take these numbers and we could show them linearly and say, Hey, this freshman got stronger by the time he was a senior. And that's the way it's been done for so long. And then you are like, what prevents us from taking the freshman's squat video? And we look at this guy's pretty poor squat that you would expect from a freshman. Now look at this guy's squat as a senior. And yes, he squats more, but look at his quality of movement. Look how efficient his movement is. And I was like, my goodness, like, what are we doing just staring at these leaderboard numbers on these whiteboard on these boards in the weight room? You have no idea what that looked like. You right. have no idea what it looked like. It was it starfish power clean, second place all time. Let's and that's when the video journal was like, man, we can take a qualitative approach to letting strength coaches look at their outcomes, their athlete outcomes, as opposed to just being a database of numbers, which is all I thought, kind of thought Team Builder was, is that we're a database of numbers, we're a database of numbers. And then now it's like, no, we're a qualitative, holistic platform. But you're the one who kind of had to introduce that concept to me. You know, one of the things that I laugh about when I hear him talk about that is I actually, I can see that starfish power clean. And what are we really trying to accomplish? Because again, going back to Eric's conversation from episode two, is that you know, what's this merit? What, what is the point of this? What are we doing? And are we just chasing numbers to chase numbers? Or yeah, we know that if we hit these numbers with a sound strategy, with good physiology, they're going to improve our on-field performance. And I think that now being able to see that and taking a video from someone from year one, day one to their senior year or three, four years into their contract and really having a good assessment of their quality. I mean, again, if I can have someone maintain their output 
but improve their quality 30, 40%. That reduction in the liability of the action that they're doing as it relates to longevity, that's an asset. We don't always have to be pushing forward in our output if our strategies aren't ready. And I think that that staircase effect that we've talked about is super critical as we go forward and asking ourselves, what are the demands of what we're doing? And, and really kind of what's that minimal bar that we can't ever drop below? Sure, if you can be the best and the fastest, that's great. But realistically, when we break things down, it's the liabilities that end careers. It's the valgus collapse at the knee. It's the being a step behind on a play. It's the resiliency in the fourth quarter. All of those things really tie into the larger paradigm of sports is where we're looking for you know a better performance in our, in our field and, and understanding a starter or a reliever or anything like that has very specific context. So we need to be able to break that down and, and not have to pick one side or the other. There's certainly ways that you can blend it together and execute a program that kind of satisfies both of those different paths. And I, you know, I, I think that, you know, that tied into the execution of a larger lift is so critical and so difficult to do. But I thought that our conversation with Bo Bartone who was a, a coach that I worked with at Yale and he's currently now at Future, was so well articulated. And again, for those who have not met Coach Bo or have not listened to his podcast, he's one of the rising stars in our field and industry. And again, has really, really pushed the envelope when it comes to the logistics setup, breakdown, teardowns, and, and turning a room to be able to execute a wide variety of lifts. A lot of the success that I had um, in my time while in New Haven wouldn't have been possible without him. And again, it's it's so refreshing to go back and I've listened to his podcast several times of just the level of detail that goes into it. Cause I take it for granted because he was so good at what he did. My staff was so great at what they did, but when you really hear about locations of putting people on the racks or what part of the room they're going to be in, how close is it to the leg press? Do we have a broken cable stack? All those kind of communication channels. He was really a master. And so I, I take this little snippet here as just one of the many kind of in his operational workflows of how to execute a lift that really kind of highlights, you know, how to do things well and, and how to really be elite when it comes to executing a lift. So let's take a listen. You're kind of referencing the late Charles Poliquin is like getting into programming. He, he found at, through a ton of trial and error that individualization of programming is the way to go to the best detail that you possibly can do it. Um, so if you're not auditing, you don't know how to do that. If you're, if you don't even know how to get people to adhere to your program and then how to check the numbers daily and weekly, I, I, I'm a big proponent of daily auditing because even if you go a week, things can fall through the cracks and then you miss. And now that's a whole week of training that may not have been bad, but could have been a lot better. We start with, okay, who do we have to work with to run this lift? What are their capabilities? And then you start assigning out roles and responsibilities, depending on that coach's ability, whether they're a senior or an intern coach, right? And then uh, I think one of the biggest things is, is communication, right? And that's a, a huge buzzword. You got to communicate, got to talk, but like, you just got to do it. It's not talking about doing, you just have to do it, but then you have to plan it. You don't just talk in the moment about how to figure things out. You need to prep your butt off the whole time. And there, there's a couple things that, that we always kind of fell back on or talked about when it came to communication is a, or even just planning a lift or planning anything was Murphy's law. So you have to anticipate what will go wrong, can go wrong in your preparation. So as I mentioned, there's a lot of things that he touches on in this kind of conversation, but I thought his whole point that he brings up about 
when we talk about an audit and for anyone who doesn't know, an audit is simply saying, okay, we wanted to lift three sets of 10 at a given weight. Did they do it? And so we can calculate tonnage. We can calculate pounds per rep. We can calculate a lot of things, maybe velocity, depending on what we're doing. Um, but specifically it's that kind of prescription, which everybody likes to do Theor theoretical programming is irrelevant. Uh, if you can't document what happened and that's really that audit is where we take that leap into kind of individualized medicine. And anybody that writes a plan, if I write a plan for 10 athletes and you say, here you go, the chances that that plan was executed exactly to the way that it was supposed to be done is pretty minimal. There's usually a bell curve distribution of effectiveness. And so the audit really allows you to come back in and say, okay, what worked, what didn't work? And then what are we going to do the next day? And he talks about the daily auditing where he would go through every workout card and analyze it six ways a Sunday to then find out, you know, what's best. And I think he brings up a great point. It's not that it's right or wrong. It's not binary. It's kind of the spectrum of, okay, we did this, but could it have been better? And, and you have to ask yourself when you're in this profession, you know, sometimes it's easy to get complacent that, you know, creeping in the back of your mind of that, you know, I'm not getting paid anymore to sit here for four hours. Versus if I just put it out here in one hour, is it good enough? But knowing when you listen to this podcast, if he walks through step-by-step step of how to execute the back end of the lift, as well as the front end of the lift, you know, when he brings up the point about, okay, well, who are your coaches? If you're in a room with five senior coaches, and again, I go back to how spoiled I was when you have four or five coaches that could be head coaches elsewhere, you know, just, we think about on sports teams where the depth chart was pretty deep, you know, you can do a lot when you have four or five, you know, experienced coaches, but what do you do if you have a junior coach? How do you, how do you coach them up? How do you maximize their opportunities and their abilities? And how do you do that with an internship? You know, how do you do that with an intern who's excited and motivated, but has less than a thousand hours of rack time. And so do you have them uh, move things around the weight room? Do you have them uh, be a scribe with a senior coach? There's lots of ways you can do it, but I think his talk about the preparation and planning that goes into a high end lift is something that's often overlooked maybe taken for granted by individuals who just, oh, well, you just show up and lift. It's, uh, you know, it's not hard. You move some weights around and that's it. No, if you want to do it right, you can listen to his podcast and he can really, really kind of articulate it better than anybody um, of how we break those things down and how we're able to execute the lift um, day in and day out at a very high level. And without planning um, for Murphy's Law, as you mentioned, you know, I think you're really leaving yourself open to some missed opportunities. And, and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes injuries happen. Um, but again, could you have planned to mitigate that? You know, did that happen because you overprescribed? Did you do it because it was too hot? Did you do it because it was too cold or anywhere in between, but really kind of taking away that preparation that's required. And I know that he talks about it from a technical lift standpoint. And again, with coach, um, you know, he went from entry level to senior throughout a very short period of time and, and had really great results. Um, but I don't think he's the only one because when we spoke with Adam Petway in episode 26, he had very similar things of saying, what are we trying to accomplish? And so the title of his podcast was, what's the question you're asking? And whether it's at Hawken or in my own personal conversations with colleagues in the field, I find that that's probably one of the most powerful things you can ask. What are we trying to accomplish? And it can't be we're doing everything and it can't be that we're doing everything yesterday. And so having a really clear plan of, okay, what is our largest problem? What are we going to do to fix it? 
what's our feedback loop going to be like? Are we going to do this once a month? Are we going to do it once a week? How are we going to integrate that? But starting with a really good question and, you know, his breakdown and articulation of that as it related to both basketball, but track and field is really great. So let's take a quick second here, jump into that uh, and take a listen. Hey, building relationships, right? So with the, with the technical tactical staff and with the athletes, like you got to have that relationship to create the buy-in of what you're doing. Um, B it's just like, again, like, what questions are you trying to answer? Everybody's trying to win a championship. Uh, everybody's trying to increase performance, decrease injury risk. So uh, again, I think starting with a good question and say, Hey, we want to know, are our athletes getting better or are they ready for competition or training? All right. Well, okay. You know, you could do that through force platform analysis. I would start really simple, um, get a system that's easy to interface with, because like, if you get a really complicated system that, you know, let's say you need, you know, markers, or let's say there's a lot of post-processing. Well, that's not good in an environment where you're just taking over, right? So that interface between hardware and software and user um, and, and tester have to be like kind of seamless, right? You know, as I mentioned, you know, his ability to be able to break that down and have application both from, you know, a high level NBA conversation, but then also being able to say, okay, well, what if we need to tweak this in the future? How do we analyze that? His ability, and obviously with a PhD background, he's pretty smart. Um, so he's able to really kind of bring some of these scientific kind of principles into the weight room and into the squat racks that really hasn't been commonplace until you know recently. And again, the work that he's done, the research that he's published, it all starts off with kind of figuring out this central question and then breaking it into the day-to-day um, training program. And then Bo mentions this as well about, okay, what's our feedback like? Eric mentioned this as well. What's our feedback like as we go forward and we start analyzing these things day in and day out? What are we actually going to do about it? What are we going to discuss with the athlete? What are we going to discuss internally? A lot of that stuff takes a lot of, you know, thinking and, and, and foresight into, you know, what's going to make the biggest difference. But if we don't start off kind of on a neutral you know, playing ground of, okay, this is what I want to accomplish. Very quickly, you can get inundated with this kind of deluge of information that is just kind of more paralyzing than it is helpful. And again, we've been doing this for generations. And I thought our conversation with coach Joe Ken was really enlightening because you got to see firsthand how you can have someone who's been around the industry for quite a long time, used old school common sense, along with technology and collaboration with different practitioners to be able to come up with both training protocols and testing protocols that not only drove confidence with the players, but to the coaches themselves. And so let's just take a listen real quick and hear about this cluster protocol that again, was one of the first times he's talked about it publicly, but has been around for years and years and really kind of think about how this is a great illustration of both the integration of training as well as testing in the day-to-day -day practice. I was doing a post-summer strength test for our football players where we did a 15 rep cluster. So I made it like it's a 15 play drive. We started at anywhere between 85 and 88% of their pure one rep max for March. So it was in a traditional like powerlifting setting where they accomplished a one RM. And the goal was, can they do it for 15 reps with 35 second rest? Similar to a game. Because my thought was, and it's a weird misnomer, but it was my whole thing was from a conditioning and a strength standpoint was last fast, meaning be in great shape that you can play fast. It lasts fast, like fourth quarter fast. And then 
play stronger longer. That if you're in quality shape, you can maintain a high level of your maximal strengths. You know, that he had been working on um, with Dr. Rhea, um, who was down at Alabama and now with the Saints, of understanding, okay, well, how do we make our training actually the test? And I think that that's another thing that we're starting to see as kind of a tectonic shift is it's no longer, I'm going to test in August, and then we're going to test uh, in December and do a pre and post. We have the ability now to make the actual training the test in and of itself. Now, I'm assuming that, you know, when we say that, if people aren't doing their lifts, if they're not showing up to lifts, that's probably the largest metric that you need to analyze from the start. But assuming that everyone's there and assuming that, you know, people are bought into your program, they believe in the metrics and the, the, the different, you know, milestones that you've set before them. How do we actually integrate training into the larger kind of yardstick and measuring stick for our performance? And, and when coach Ken talks about something so simple as, Hey, 15 reps, 15 reps on a 35 second clock. Now just think about that. That's basically a drive. That's a, it's a play drive in football. So he was able to take it down. And why did he choose the 35 seconds rest? It wasn't arbitrary. He said, okay, I'm going to try to mirror the clock. And what did he find out? Individuals that used 85 to 88% of their one RM max. Now he talks about that they use their March max. So again, that was the end of a strength phase and whether that was maintained throughout or not, um, as he would roll into the summer, he would kind of use that as his litmus test. Now I'm sure you could auto-regulate that to the current one RM um, of the time. But again, with the people that he was working with, um, they were already kind of established um, at their genetic strength being in the NFL. But, you know, knowing that, that's pretty incredible to be able to hit, you know, 88 or 85% of your max. And, and we're not talking 135 pounds here. You know, it's how quickly can you move 400, 450, 500 and being able to do that and really helping individuals buy into the fact that, yes, if you call upon your strength, not only do you have maximal strength, you have repeated usable game strength in the time setting and the parameters that your sport is going to have to meet the demands. And so, that's just a great example of we started off with, with talking about with Petway saying, starting with a question, then moving on over uh, to Coach Ken. And again, not speaking to each other, you see this similar philosophy. And I think anytime that we can see philosophies, concepts, or kind of roadmaps that people have had repeated success, we should pay attention. And so when we see that, we really, really want to take the time to kind of bank that, save it but then also analyze further. And, and so having these times to audit, having these times to sit down and have a roundtable kind of logistics question of why did this work? You know, was it because we did a better strength block? Was it a better preparatory block? Did we do nutrition? And I thought Dr. Kramer really highlighted that in conversation 27 that we had where he breaks down the physiological underpinnings of the metabolic circuit on a level that people had never seen before. And so simple things such as what is cardio? What is conditioning? when coach Ken talked about his cluster, it wasn't that people were hyperventilating. It was, they weren't able to produce force. And we really see in the literature, really kind of pre 1960, going back to Dudley Sargent throughout 1889 to 1914, when he was at Harvard and looking at endurance, it was from a neuromuscular standpoint. I mean, people, you can Google this, go take a look at it, but the, the endurance of uh, endurance strength test that he had was a combination of body weight activities within a 30 minute uh, period of time, basically it was a density workout and understanding how many thousands of foot pounds it would take to be proficient at a varsity sport at Harvard was really interesting because we fast forward now over a hundred years later, 
Well, that's what coach Ken was doing. And so when he says, okay, well, someone who can get 12 or 13 is in shape for football. What is that shape? Dr. Kramer mentions it here and we'll, we'll just take a snippet. And again, this entire um, conversation we had with him goes on for quite a while. Um, he, he really kind of, again, shows you what's possible about knowing the science, but I'll stop talking. Let's let him break it down for us. Essentially, the survivor circuit, then now known as the Husker, started off with three exercises, typically a, a hip sled, a bench press, and say a power clean. And you did 10 repetitions with 10 seconds rest in between the exercises at a relatively high intensity. And that load was modulated if you successfully could do the 10 reps or couldn't do the 10 reps. So then you went to each exercise and that was it. So it was a very low volume, but it, it started to expose people at level one to the, the, the conditions of the fact that you're going to get this dramatic level of, of hydrogen ion production. Now, lactate doesn't cause fatigue. It's not related to pH change. It's related to pH changes, but it doesn't cause it. But that's a myth, myth that's many times misunderstood. But it shows you that fact that you have a high lactate type program. You got a lot of hydrogen ions that are basically getting in the way of the contraction types that we see with regard to movement. Now, what happens is that at level one, it was just exposure. So the way this originally was looked at by Boyd was to be able to look at it as a Tuesday, Thursday workout surrounding the Monday, Wednesday, Friday workouts that were heavy and related to strength. So you're not developing a lot of strength per se with the Husker program. They was trying to develop toleration to intense fatigue. And that's one of the things that we, we have to look at, the fatigue process. And obviously then to, to kind of kind of complement the strength training aspect that was going on as well. Now, as the Husker improved, as individuals could go to the next level, now you add two sets to those three exercises. Then you go and then you move forward and then you can add three sets. And then it evolved all the way to a 10 exercise sequence. Now it became a monster unto itself. And basically you can't do it as a complementary program two days a week around three day a week because now you got a five day a week program that's just not not recoverable so it ended up being that in our work and other work that we did over the years it started to be an alternate exercise where you had strength one day and then you had you had the you had the husker at certain times of the year you basically did it and then you had a rest day completely so the key factor with regard to the short rest programs and remember, you got strength, power, and then you've got, if you're going to do it two days a week, you basically have to have a rest day following it. So you never, you, you never, you, you realize, we realized early on that you couldn't put a short rest, high intensity, high volume program when you're elevated up to the level three and beyond that basically was going to be done the day, be, be, you know, the day uh, before another heavy program. You, you had to need a rest day. And that's the mistake a lot of programs make. They do these high intensity, short rest protocols, but they don't have a rest day following it. And that's problem too with, with athletics. People have to realize, is, as I think in the, one of the earlier podcasts, you have to realize what the sport coach is doing. So the bottom line is it's an integration of this type of program into a training sequence that has to be very importantly and strategically made. But the original Husker, the original survivor circuit was to complement the strength program that was going on three days a week 
to get at the construct of fatigue resistance when repetitive muscle actions and fatigue happens late in the game or in the fourth quarter, end of the half, et cetera. That was its original intent. And then it got builded. As people got more adapted, they could do more. And as you mentioned, some people gain adaptations in, in the aspects of all their different physiological functions relative to reduced inhibition, buffering of acid and everything else where they can do a tremendous amount. And then you got to know when to really stop and, and, and think about what do I do next? And you can see what, I, what I'm talking about there is that we really, really, when we talk about conditioning, it's very easy to say winded. It's very easy to say wind. Getting our cardiovascular or ventilatory or oxygen or aerobic kind of strength uh, is different than anaerobic strength. It's different than anaerobic strength and conditioning. And so when he talks about that pH um, level or those hydrogen ions, the hydrogen gets in the way of the contraction. It's a proxy via lactate, even though lactate doesn't you know, necessarily equate to the fatigue, but it's a proxy. It's there. I think that's so important because if you went and pulled your staff and you asked them, can you explain the underlying physiology of your metabolism? Can you explain your underlying neurological demands of your game? I don't know if every practitioner um, is fully up to speed on that. I think that's something that you work with in college. Maybe if you have a little more research-minded type person, maybe they know, but it's worth going back and taking that time when you're continuing education to really be a master of your domain and go in and understand, okay, what are the three or four things that the top performers have? You know, are they things I can control? You know, if they're, if it's tall, being tall or having, you know, a plus three or four wingspan over your height, well, you can't really do much as a coach for that. That's a recruiting thing. However, if you come back and say something like coach Ken found, which is that individuals that can move this amount of weight for 15 reps on a 35 second clock, well, that's great because now you start to understand these are the minimal outputs that we need in order to give our athletes a chance to be successful. And I think that's super important because with, without question, there's no way for us to say with certainty, if they do this, they're going to be great. What we can say is if they can do these things, we have tremendous confidence that they're going to be able to make a play, but what's the strategy, what's the tactics, what's their underlying skills. We can't really necessarily control that. But what we can do is put our athletes in a position for success, not only on the field, but off the field as well. And I think as we see a larger push to kind of the holistic approach towards athlete training, this is becoming more and more evident because if we're having trouble off the field, if we're having trouble in the classroom or having trouble at home, all of those stressors kind of drive into the larger stress on the system, which again will impact the training. And so I think that we need to have these kind of abilities to step back, get a larger, you know, kind of macro perspective on is our program working or not. And there's so many ways you can analyze this. You can put them on the plates, you can do a survey, you can do a whole host of things as far as auditing your plans and looking back. And you need to have those checkpoints. I mean, something as simple as a vertical jump, measuring power, measuring impulse, whatever your metric is consistently and, and on a daily basis, we're talking seconds. And we often say to customers, we're not asking you to spend time. We're asking you to invest time. And, and I'll be the first to say, I'm not going to spend more than eight minutes on my sports science in a different field. And then again, if there's a traditional uh, rehab or something like that, maybe there's more, but I'm going to carve out at least eight minutes in an hour lift block to be able to analyze not only what I think is going on, but get a true 
objective measurement on what is, and that could be recording through video, that could be um, get, getting bar speed, but we want to have something that, you know, kind of confirms what we're seeing. And hopefully those two stay in alignment, but if they don't, let's catch it after one day, catch it in our audit, like coach Bo said, um, rather than wait, you know, six months and say, wow, that, that plan wasn't very good. We should have probably gotten on that. Um, so we're able to do that. And so those quick day-to-day -day measurements of efficacy are super important. And you can do other measurements as well that maybe you do once a month. Maybe you do it once every six months. Maybe you do it as a primary measure of efficacy once a year. I mean, Guy Hornsby's talk is, again, one of our most downloaded and Conversation 20, where he talks about the, the mid-thigh pull. And what I loved about this conversation was, is that he is a unique blend of young researcher, young practitioner that is actually a coach. And I think that's so important because as the two worlds of research and being a modern practitioner kind of have to blend because that's the way it's headed, we have to understand where everyone's coming from. So his perspective as an athlete and as a coach was super informative in his decision on how they use the mid-thigh pole. And I thought his explanation and, and breakdown that he does on how to set it up was great. And so he brings up all the things about research, about how it should be done. There's a great research article that he did with uh, Dr. Stone. So we'll have that in the notes and the comments for you to be able to take a look at, but really take the time that if you're going to do something, do it right. And so let's just jump in real quick and, and have him kind of break down the mid-thigh pole for us. And, and you keep mentioning the mid-thigh pole, and I, I'm going to come out and say, speaking as someone who watches this over and over again, could you please please set the record straight on how to properly set this thing up. Because if I watch one more time of a tall guy and a short guy using the same height bar and everyone's just gripping and ripping, alternate grip with straps, not straps. Like I think there needs to be, the record has to be set straight on if you are going to do this specifically, if you're going to compare people to themselves or to others, you have to standardize it a little bit and it drives me bananas on an isometric test that you could see even in one session, five different ways that it's done. What is the way that you did it as a program efficacy measure? Um, I would love to address that. Well, one thing with the uh, talking about like kind of getting it outside stressors and, and education of the athletes. I think that that, I hope that goes on um, at, at most places. I, I honestly, I don't know if it does or doesn't. Um, to, to, to applaud a staff that I've had a couple of uh, actually graduates from our high school SNC program with uh, Stephanie Mock at University of Pittsburgh. I've um, had a number of students that have worked with, worked with her and currently work for her. Um, they have a sort of the, the, first, the first week um, where the athletes are back, they, you know, they have a, they've come with a battery of testing that all of the teams do. And not only do they do that, but they actually have a sort of station base and they, they even, I think this is pretty cool. They'll have two teams that will like as part of their education. So we're going to go over to the force plate and someone's going to take them through the why and the how, and, and what does this all mean? And why does it matter? And then they'll go to another station. And, and um, I think that it's, you know, it's helpful for athletes to see that, you know, yes, every sport is unique, but also yes, if we're talking like anaerobic power-based sports, there's also a whole lot of similarities. And so um, there's reasons to do uh, the same thing for a bunch of different sports and, and to do them well. But uh, to include them in that education process, I think is so helpful, not just for the sake of like, they care about this test now, 
but also for the overall appreciation of taking care of themselves, the outside stressors, um, you know, sort of the, the very helpful uh, uh, behaviors. Um, but then into the ISO poll, so a, a shameless plug, um, a couple, about two years ago, we, we uh, Doc Stone, myself and some others, um, uh, two, two of the authors, Doc and Harold O'Brien, who would be the other author on that uh, uh, book you showed me when we started, uh, did, did a paper that was called, it was, I'm gonna botch the uh, actual name, but it was like 25 years worth of experience with the isometric mid-dipole. And um, yes, I, I see videos all the time um, where there are considerable position issues. And so, uh, you know, a, without getting into like ang angles and that type of stuff, probably maybe the most helpful thing is to say, it, it really should be a good quality power position for the clean. And so it's that, that's roughly a, a, a quarter squat and you want their torso straight up and down. And I will even go so far to say that you can, so there, there's ranges.